I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Proteins have the power and performance of an antibody with the ability to bind tightly to a target. But because of their small size, they can penetrate into places where small molecules go. Ordeos Bio is leveraging its generative AI platform to develop a pipeline of mini protein therapeutics. We spoke to David Longo, co founder and CEO of Ordeos, about the company's focus on mini proteins its generative AI platform, and why it's building its own pipeline around rare disease indications and partnering with other drug developers on other indications. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about generative AI, or Deus, and its efforts to design and develop a class of AI-designed mini-protein therapeutics. Perhaps we can start with mini-proteins. What is a mini-protein? Yeah, thank you for the question. So a mini-protein is a single-domain protein that is between 40 and 80 amino acids, canonically speaking, or actually at Ordeos, we include VHH in this definition. So To make it simple, there are molecules that are 20 times smaller than monoclonal antibodies, but equal in power and performance. In the the world of small molecule drugs, there are a a set of qualities that make something drug-like. Is that true within protein therapeutics as well? Yes and no. Uh, So there are certainly characteristics of proteins that we look to avoid. There are certainly characteristics that we look to garner, um, things like a tightly packed hydrophobic core, for instance. We don't have the sort of Lipinski's rule of five, so to speak, in the protein world, but that's actually one of the values of the AI is to try to uncover some of these uh, causal relationships between amino acid choices and therapeutic efficacy. Well, what makes many proteins compelling is a therapeutic modality. How do they differ from large protein therapeutics in terms of their capabilities or their advantages or or disadvantages? The difference between small molecule and large molecule and where many proteins fits into that equation is that small molecules gives you uh, the ability to, or small molecules give you the ability to penetrate while um, avoiding uh, excellent binding. Whereas with large molecule antibodies, you're dealing with great binding, but a difficulty penetrating to spaces. So they're very weak in penetration of the blood-brain barrier, for instance. They have trouble penetrating into deep tumor microenvironments. What many proteins give you is the benefits of both worlds. So you have the ability to bind from an antibody. You have equivalent power and performance and the ability to bind tightly to anything, including a flat surface while you also have the ability to penetrate that you would see in a small molecule. 
This could be crossing the blood-brain barrier. This could be crossing the gut epithelial layer. Um, but more importantly, penetrating deep into a tumor microenvironment so that you don't suffer from drug resistance that you see in large molecules like Herceptin or Progetta. And just to clarify, does that mean they can reach intracellular targets? Intracellular can be targeted by way of very small mini proteins, and they still require the typical protein engineering of something like a lipid nanoparticle or some sort of vehicle to allow them to cross into that intracellular region. Uh, with that said, their, their reduced size allows you to get more potency for the same concentration. So as you are able to pack these lipid nanoparticles, you're able to pack them with sort of more drug per space, if that makes sense. What are the implications of these from a manufacturing point of view? Yes, thank you. An another advantage of these mini proteins is that they're I guess you would call it simpler than antibodies in the sense that um, they're typically more based around alpha helices. Uh, you know, if there are uh, cysteines, they're, they're very carefully chosen uh, to form these cysteine staples. So they're simpler modules, but on top of that, their construction lends itself to folding. So this tightly packed hydrophobic core forces them to fold naturally. So what that means is that you're more likely to be able to synthesize them with um, bacterial expression systems, for instance, than you are a more traditional antibody where you might require uh, mammalian expression systems. We've also expressed our proteins in everything, including FMOC chemical synthesis. So you could even express them using typical sort of peptide mechanisms. So because of that, you're gonna end up with more reliable, higher purity manufacturing, which will end up reducing cost. Cordeus has developed an AI platform for discovering many proteins. Do you design these from scratch? What, what's the starting point for creating a mini protein? What are the elements and functionality you can build into these? Thank you for the question. I'd like to almost correct you. We've uh, created a design engine to design proteins, as you, as you mentioned. So we believe that what we're creating is a paradigm shift from discovery. In traditional methods, you're using an existing library. You're screening that library down to see what sets off a specific assay. Now, what we're doing is starting from absolutely nothing, building these proteins up, amino acid by amino acid, such that they're matching the specific molecular target product profile that either our team internally or external partners are looking for. What that means is that you can target them to specific on targets. You can avoid off targets to avoid liabilities. You can look for specific solubility characteristics, immunogenicity, um, stability, any of these characteristics that we would think of as physical chemical properties, drug-like properties, liabilities, we can build into the design of the protein such that every single amino acid choice is made with that final product profile in mind. Does that mean you're creating many proteins that are not necessarily seen in nature? That is correct. So as with most things, I think evolution is a evolution is a powerful mechanism. And so certainly the, the more highly conserved, the more likely that protein is to fold. But we found 
success actually developing proteins that are less than 5% homologous with other known proteins. So I like to say that evolution is not the only game in town. You know, Mother Nature has had this monopoly on protein design for long enough, and it's, it's time for others to enter the arena. Uh, with that, you're seeing truly novel protein designs, um, whether those be novel structures or not, but um, something that you haven't seen in nature before. A lot of the earlier AI around drug development and drug discovery have really been to do things in silico or, you know, identify molecules that might hit a target or, or, or have potential toxicity. We're seeing more generative type AI showing up now in, in the drug development process. What are the implications of this to drug development long term? As you mentioned, the way we've approached this traditionally, and in fact, you know, many AI companies that are out today are using AI in a predictive mechanism. So they're predicting, as you said, toxicity, they're predicting um, binding, all these kinds of things with an existing library. So that's applying AI to an existing process. That's applying AI to an existing process to hopefully improve that process, but you're not gonna get a, a paradigm shift in terms of speed, in terms of efficacy. Where we're using it and where generative AI brings the power is that you're not simply filtering from known entities, you're creating from scratch. So this is akin to if you're looking for um, a piece of art of a dog in the ocean, you know, you may find pieces of art that are dogs in a yard. You may find fish in the ocean, but you might not find dog in ocean. Whereas with generative AI, you can simply determine, I'd like a picture of a dog in the ocean. And sure enough, out pops a painting. It's the same idea here in drug discovery or drug design. And the downstream effect, I, I can't um, underplay, I, I, or I can't overstate. With generative AI, theoretically, we'll be reducing the failures because we're not simply filtering from what's there, but we're creating from scratch and we're designing from scratch. So in, in the aggregate, we'll be increasing the success rate and reducing the cycle time and the number of failure points in the drug discovery process. Is there any way to quantify the benefits of this approach from either a cost or, or speed point of view? Definitely. Uh, there have been many studies on this from everyone from McKinsey to BCG to Deloitte and all this. Um, what we're looking at overall in the drug development process, as we all know, is there's a 10-year and $2.6 billion total cost to bring a drug to market. That's made up of about five years of clinical trials and about five years of drug discovery, so to speak. So preclinical. That includes the capitalized cost, though. Yes, correct. So what we're looking at is that front half of the drug development pipeline, whether that be from target ID through into um, the preclinical assays, that can all be sped up with AI to in our estimation, less than six months. Because this target identification, you can use AI to find novel targets intelligently. You can translate those intelligent targets into protein drugs 
in weeks rather than years. And from there, as we're able to predict and, and uh, causally design more accurately, we'll be able to reduce the number of assays were, are, that are required in the dish and rely on the speedier um, computational models. That's also implicated in uh, the FDA Modernization Act of 2021, where we're now able to leverage sort of non-in vivo models to get some of the proof required to get us through regulatory. So in that case, now you're talking about target ID dropping from, let's say, two years down to a few days, theoretically. You're talking about lead um, or hit, hit design and, or hit discovery and lead optimization dropping from, again, two years down to a few weeks. And then the uh, downstream of the in vivo will also reduce as this uh, Modernization Act moves us into uh, a faster, more computationally heavy model. And with that, now you're talking about that five-year and you know, let's call it half of the $2.6 billion cost significantly decreased um, into something that is that reduces costs across the board. How far do you take a model in your AI system before it moves to a more traditional development pathway? Do you do experiments in silico? Do you continue to feed data back into the system as you do wet lab experiments? Yes, we like to think of our company as a continuous learning loop. So everything that we ever touch comes back into the models and uh, continues to train the models. So our in silico predictions come back to train the models in a semi-supervised fashion. Our in vitro experiments, the data from that gets fed back into the models as ground truth. So far, we've had internal case studies that pushed into functional in vitro, and we're excited to move into in vivo later this year. In terms of where we partner this out, uh, it's run the gamut, but we like to partner early so that we can be involved in the early design and the uh, specification of these molecules and bring them as far as we're willing. Uh, certainly we're a young company, so we'd like to um, leverage our partners for later stage preclinical or, or clinical development. But as of now, um, we've moved into functional in vitro successfully. Let's talk about the business model. Ordeos is building its own pipeline around rare disease indications and partnering with other drug developers on other indications. Why for your wholly owned pipeline are you focusing on rare diseases? Yeah, thank you. The business model we like to think of as an asset foundry. So what we mean by that is that we are developing protein assets, whether that's internally or externally, at the end of the day, we're creating an asset. So the ownership of that can move based on how we work the agreement. Why we're focusing on rare disease, as I mentioned, there's a major economic difference between the traditional method of drug discovery and what we're looking at with drug design. So if we can pull that 2.6 billion down to let's be aspirational here and say under 300 million or, or even less, then the downstream effect is that these rare disease populations that were um, otherwise maybe untenable, so to speak, from a financial perspective, are now within reach. And we can, we are actually enabled to create medicines for these rare disease populations where it may have been harder to garner the interest from um, 
other entities that that would require a little more payout on the on the back end, right? Because their costs were so high. Instead, we can use our many proteins to benefit these populations um, at the increased efficiency that we're able to realize. Are there specific indications or areas within rare diseases that many proteins are particularly well suited to address? Many proteins as a class are certainly better suited to areas where something like penetration matters. So uh, penetrating into a tumor microenvironment or across a, a membrane. Um, they're also better if we're looking at something like intravenous delivery where uh, their clearance rate, um, although we can modulate the clearance rate, their clearance rate is less important. So with that said, it's not a particular indication, but it's a sort of characteristic of disease that we're looking um, to find the perfect candidate or the perfect partner for these many proteins. But things like cancer or autoimmune diseases, I take it these would be good candidates for? Yes, certainly. And so our beachhead has been in oncology and we've looked at, uh, for instance, triple negative is our, is our primary prog program right now, where this is an unsolved area where many proteins can um, provide a, a novel treatment that, uh, again, from the flexibility of many proteins and from the uh, increased cost or the decreased cost profile uh, will lead to an ideal solution for patients. And in terms of partnering, what makes an ideal partner for Deos and, and how do you generally structure these arrangements? An ideal partner for Odeos typically comes with, first of all, excitement for the future of drug design through AI. Uh, but beyond that, we often look for novel biology. Um, by that, we mean perhaps it's a, it's a novel approach to uh, patient subtyping. Perhaps it's, a, it's an approach to the dark genome or uncoded proteins but we're looking for novel biology to pair with our novel AI. Um, as an example of that, Yatiri Bio, our partner in AML, brings a sort of cutting edge proteomics platform to patient subtyping in AML to give us a unique perspective on how to address this terrible disease. And that will allow us to create a better uh, medicine there with their support. We look for um, partners that are in it for the long haul. So we're looking for those groups that have um, a pedigree that shows that they're willing to stick with these programs for a long, uh, for a long period or the long uh, development time that is central to drug development. And the, we structure these deals in, in various ways. Uh, we like to think that there is some kind of an upfront um, economics and some kind of a downstream economics. And depending on uh, conviction for the, the target, for the partner, we can shift that to be, um, you know, sort of economic or cash-based, or it could be uh, a long-term play for us, if that makes sense. You mentioned Utiri. One of the things I found compelling about that was the fact that they are bringing all this data to bear. In, in terms of a lot of these systems, you're only going to be as effective as your data enables you. Are there other data sets that you're using to to, to build and invent these drugs? Are there are there data's you're doing collecting through experimentation? What what are you doing to to build the the knowledge of the AI system itself? 
We use every bit of data we can get our hands on, of course. If you look at even the public data sets, let's just start from the public data sets. What we're doing with generative AI is we're also supposing nearby points to existing points. We're sort of um, augmenting the data or uh, inventing our own data that's then analyzed internally to, to create a more robust view of even those public data sets. So that's to say that our baseline system is trained on public data that's accessible to um, you know, the world at large, but our approach to it is very unique um, and allows us greater results off that same data. But then, as you mentioned, with someone like Yatiri, we're getting uh, very intricate data and actually detailed data on a, a proteomic basis that can benefit our models specifically in that disease area of interest. And then, of course, augmenting that is our in vitro lab, where in our laboratory, we're able to take our perspective on in vitro experimentation and develop refined data that um, can give our model very fine-grained insight into the causality of an experimental result. What I mean by that is that our approach to data gathering is one where we care very deeply about negatives. So I think the, the traditional viewpoint in biotech or pharma is to, let's say, screen for a functional result. Well, along the way, you might be getting that functional result, but you might be getting a poor aggregation or you might be getting um, weak binding that happens to be functional and you miss that because you're going for the positive. Every time we do any kind of functional result or any time we do any kind of um, campaign, we're taking intricate measurements along the way. So we're getting everything from expression yield to purity to um, you know, downstream um, physiochemical properties such that we know exactly why something failed, which allows our models to be more discriminative and more accurate. I think with a lot of companies that have powerful discovery platforms, the challenges on the partnering side always have to do with getting value out of those relationships and ensuring that, that a partner stays committed to a program and that they don't have a change in their focus 18 months down the road. What are you doing in terms of ensuring these partnerships actually create value for the company and, and that the partners are committed? There's a heavy vetting process that goes into any relationship that we form. And in fact, we've, we've turned down partnerships in the past because we just didn't feel comfortable moving forward with that group or we didn't feel like they were fully committed. So when we do get through that vetting process with a new partner, we'll structure the deal in such a way that we have the ability to sort of lift the deal on our back and take it forward if, um, if need be. So think of sort of optionality to um, rescinding that molecule or taking that back. Um, but more importantly, we create these partnerships so that we can create value down the line. And we've created a network of um, value generators, so to speak. So that means that if we form a new partnership, we'll be talking about the downstream capitalization of that and how we can get um, additional funding into the partnership early on to make sure that everyone is getting what they need to maximize success along the way. So we certainly don't enter a partnership and uh, let that be, you know? We um, continue to tend to the garden of the partnership as we as we go. And how is Ordeos funded and, and how far will existing funding take you? Ordeos was uh, very happy to receive our 
$5 million seed funding in 2022. And we are in the process of um, taking in some additional uh, seed funding to date. That funding will get us into our Series A, which we expect to be launching next year, that we hope will take us um, to continue to develop this ID to IND uh, asset foundry of the future. We've been uh, so thankful to have been joined by great investors like Midland Capital and Route 66 Ventures, IAG Capital Partners, and others. And we're continuing to be joined by new investors every day that, that bring their unique perspectives and support. It's a, a difficult financing environment in general right now, although uh, venture investors seem to be a little bit more receptive to AI. What's the discussion like with potential investors? I have a more upbeat view of the investment community right now. I think there is a lot of concern in the community around how long this economic condition is going to last, if we're through uh, any sort of recessional um, positioning and all that. But what you hear from investors is they want to be out of the situation they're in and they want to believe. And especially in early stage, there's still a lot of conviction to be taking controlled risks. So I would say if you have a, a business with good fundamentals, you're going to survive in a situation like this. Whereas perhaps if you have a, you know, a business that is less thought out and, and less uh, likely to succeed, you, you might not. Um, the investors I've spoken to really understand that, especially following COVID and following um, a lot of the medical coverage recently, there is a need for that paradigm shift and there is a need for that drastic change in the way that we do drug discovery. So they're willing to, to jump on board and get involved. What you might be seeing is a shift from, let's say a seed fund to an angel group or a family office. And you might see a shift from a series B fund to something like a crossover as you're seeing this sort of push both upward and downward in who's getting involved in funds. But those people that are getting involved, I think are, are showing a lot of energy. And if you're persistent with it, you can, you can make your way through. David Longo, co-founder and CEO of Ordeos. David, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it. Thank you.